Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Australia's first net zero carbon housing estate, The Cape, in Cape Patterson, Victoria. The Cape is less than two hours from Melbourne and is situated next to some of the most picturesque beaches in Victoria. Cape houses are super efficient, averaging over eight stars, comfortable all year round, and don't burn any fossil fuels. The estate features more than 50% open space, wetlands, kilometres of walking and cycling tracks, a huge community farm, a sports precinct, and direct walk-on beach access. Keep a lookout for the launch of the Cape's highly anticipated final stage in just a couple of months. Head to liveatthecape.com.au. Hey, I'm Nathan, and this is the Dumbo Feather Podcast, where we get to know extraordinary people around the world who are charting a hopeful future. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land I'm shouting out from, the Bunurong and Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and pay respects to elders past and present. In this episode, we are bringing you an interview from the vault. Well, it wasn't that long ago, 2019, when our publisher, Barry Liberman, sat down with someone who's since become a dear friend of ours. Lydia Fairhall. You might know Lydia from her writing in Dumbo Feather magazine or on the website. And we've got another podcast with her. We love Lydia. She's soulful and connected and empowering. A war my woman who has worked as an arts producer and festival director and is now writing and playing music, which you should definitely check out wherever you get your tunes. Lydia Fairhall and the Sheoks is the band name. Lydia has an amazing story of becoming, which she shares with Barry in this chat. There you go. You did it. It's an edgy miracle when technology works in my life. I feel like that same weird mix of energy. It's like, wow, a miracle. So tense. I'm reading into things because I tend to do that. But just that idea that when you're trying to have these deep, expansive conversations, there is a kind of resistance in the field totally absolutely in some ways you kind of need it too right I often think variety of suffering whatever you call it beautiful old way that the pearl grows out of the oyster it's actually a big part of the whole story (laughs) even when it manifests as frustrating technology stop being so fucking evolved (laughs) it's an amazing start to this conversation around the grit in the oyster and a kind of a resilience that comes out of the friction and the tension and that somehow we have to muster our maturity to understand that life is not supposed to go in our favour or serve us we're meant to serve life 
Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think so much of our time, particularly in a Western context, is really spent trying to avoid any sense of uncomfortability, whether it's material or emotional or whatever it might be. And there's a lot of control that has to happen to maintain that. I really believe the older that I get and the older my children get in particular, the less that I just feel like I can line up with that anymore because I'm too busy to control everything. <laughs> Actually, acceptance and allowing becomes the norm and being okay in the contrast and in the suffering is so much more beneficial for me at this stage of my journey. I want to talk more about this because I am a really big fan of control and comfort. (laughs) I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I just want to control so that I can stay comfortable. I really love that paradigm. I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I do in terms of parenting. Surrendering has all this wisdom in it, but it's fierce how much the mind wants to stay on its train tracks. Yes. I think there's a bigger focus for me that is, around stillness and feeling peaceful and taking and tending to my inner world that has become more important than trying to control everything around. And it's funny because by taking care of the inner world and tending to the emotional and spiritual well-being, all of that stuff just gets taken care of anyway. I had this beautiful teacher in my life when I was about 15. It was another edgy miracle was able to hold down a job at a time in my life when things were really messy. And I worked at a zoo of all places in this little takeaway kiosk. And it's so funny because the universe brought me a teacher. It brought me this beautiful man who had lived out in the central desert and he was a painter. He was painting the inside of the enclosure either side of me for about six months. So in between serving up really bad cups of tea and sausage rolls, he was my teacher and I was his student. He always would talk to me about the fact that there would not be a third world war. He was very sure about that and his wise practice. But that the biggest challenge to us in contemporary times was the war within our own minds. And I absolutely connected to that at that particular stage of my life and still do. I think so much of the work is actually tending to your own sphere and vibration of peace and love and watching how that then takes care of all the bits I would have otherwise spent hours and hours trying to control on the physical level, if that makes sense. Mm. I'd love at this point for us to start where most normal people start, which is can you introduce yourself, who you are, who your people are, So I am Lydia. I am the mum of two beautiful kids and I have a beautiful husband. I am a Waramai woman. My great-grandmother was born in a tent along the Kyogle River and before that my family were on a mission at a place called Karua, just north of Newcastle. But because of how things were at that particular time, a lot of the way that our communities could survive was doing work like hawking, running the market gardens and laying the railway up and down the east coast. So at the point of my grandma's birth, there was a big separation between my family and our homelands because they moved every two weeks. My grandma literally grew up in a tent and... Every week or two they were at a new site and the whole family worked laying the railway line that now runs up and down the East Coast. 
So there was a generation or two of disconnect and I'm very grateful to my mum and my uncle who just felt called home, I guess, and retraced and connected and brought us home to our homelands and also our culture. I live today on the Kulin Nations and tomorrow I will be living on Gubby Gubby country. So it's interesting to actually be talking on this day because it's such an end of a chapter of my life. I feel like it's one of those seven-year cycles as well. We literally are leaving tomorrow. So I love being in relationship with you because not only do you carry that wisdom of 120,000 years with you, you keep reaching back to find more, to be in contact with that ancient wisdom. And you're also present right here, right now, and you lean lovingly forward into the future. And that is the kind of abundant conversation I want to have right now at this crazy, crazy moment of climate emergency and cultural breakdown to hear some ancient wisdom and try and weave it into our consciousness now and let that be some medicine for our very fractured paradigm. I think that's a daily challenge for me. How do you navigate issues that are very real and present? And there's clearly a layer for us where there are still people in our community that are living in third world conditions in a very resource-rich country. That's very little known as well. But how do you wrangle all of that and reconcile all of that as well as start to sit in a place where you're really thinking and dropping in to how our old people and our law would have dealt with these issues as well as combining that with futures thinking. So I think it's like this weird little concoction that takes me on so many amazing journeys and into so many beautiful conversations. There's been times in my life where I've been a staunch activist. I really honour and value that pathway and I certainly understand why people still are on that path. But I think for me now, there's a different world opening up in terms of how we start to move through those struggles and how we really start to tend to our spiritual well-being. And I say that because I really believe that even in a city like here in Melbourne, there is a spiritual landscape that overlays the 5 million people and the hundreds of skyscrapers and commerce and economic activity. There's a spiritual landscape here that overlays all of that. And within that landscape, there is law and it is law that is just as powerful and intact as what it ever was Sometimes it's just about awakening that. So I feel like if what we had been doing in terms of our activism had been very successful, I probably would have stayed on that path. But in some ways it hasn't really paid in the way that we would like. So I feel like all that is left is to go back to the voices of our old people and our ancestors and try to speak from that place. What I love about it, because I feel the same, activism, pure activism, not only steers you in the direction of identity politics, which is dangerous and divisive, but it also steers the individual person and the collective activist group into depletion. Absolutely. I know so many people who are doing such good work in that space, but their own spirits and their own bodies and their own families are burning out because you just can't vibrate at that level of tenseness and negativity without having some serious consequences. 
I guess the interesting bit in all of it is that spiritual bypass conversation because actually to be able to get to the point where we can talk about the laws of our old people, which really would say that we are one consciousness and that anybody born to the earth belongs to the earth and that non-Indigenous and Indigenous people actually belong to each other. That's what I believe the old people would say. But you can't have that conversation whilst half of the consciousness is the benefactory of the suffering of the other half. So there's this very fine line to walk. I'm really conscious of that in my own community and not wanting to alienate people that are still going through trauma and absolutely on the receiving end of what has been some pretty brutal government policies and actions. But I'm also absolutely refused to believe anymore that we are just passive victims in all of this. And you can still have the conversation about water sovereignty and birth justice and be empowered. I think a lot of it is about language and vibration and energy and moving away from some of those old realities and old ways of dealing with problems in a way that's good for your spirit and moves things forward because that other energy can give you a real false sense of action. Because it is so forceful I think changes it's just the hamster on a wheel kind of vibe so that leads me to my favorite thing you ever said to me we've not known each other very long but in the time we've known each other you bring a lot of medicine with your wisdom and I was talking to you about how I was in the U.S. and I really felt the race politics everywhere bristling crushing People were frightened of each other. You said something really, really amazing, and I'd love you to elaborate. You said the words, two-way strong. Yeah, I mean, I feel like those intersections of oppression play out in all of our lives in different ways. Me and my partner often talk about this because he's a black man in a patriarchal society and I'm a light-skinned woman in a white society. There'll be situations where I'm disadvantaged and situations where he's advantaged and then it'll completely flip. So it's interesting to see that all of those divisive identity markers, whatever they might be, disability, perceived disability, gender, how they play out. For me, the two-way strong thing, there's two ways to think about it. There's a version of that that's very different outbush and I don't want to speak on behalf of that version because... I am a light-skinned urban black fellow who has a lot of privilege in this country compared to my country men and women that are living in remote communities. Their concept of two-way strong is probably a lot deeper and a lot more connected to language and culture and all of the things that have not been taken away as much in that part of the country. But for me, it's about knowing that you can be in the world but not of it. There is never a physical solution to the physical problem. You can't fight or solve the issue with the same thing that created it. So being two-way strong means knowing the world and getting to learn the Western ways of doing things. I work in the arts, so a lot of the artists that I work with, I say to them, if you want true self-determination and autonomy in your creative practice, Learn the money, watch the money, learn the money, know how to get it, know how to look after it, know how to report against it because then you have true freedom in your creative practice. You're not relying on anybody to do that bit for you. So it's a little bit of that. You've got to know your creativity, your spiritual and cultural realm. Watch and observe in how it intersects with the physical world and these more Western aspects. So to be able to walk with knowledge on both sides is a really good thing for our people. 
and for the rest of the country as well. I was at the Indigenous Advisory Group for Impact Investment a few weeks ago and one of the members was talking about growing up in New Zealand and what a blessing it was as a white fella to have been immersed in Māori culture and to know the songs and the language and, like, what a terrible thing it is for non-Indigenous people in Australia that they don't get to feel that and experience it and be a part of it. That's how I understood two-way strong. I understood when you said it more as belonging to one another, that I can belong to you and you can belong to me and that we do that by staying in conversation with one another in real time. It's both and. It's on like the everyday plane and then on the spiritual plane. But, of course, I'm at the front line of business and industry. I know for a fact I actually think even racist people and people in the fossil fuel industry and and all kinds of people who are in all kinds of head spaces and heart spaces. If we were to watch the movie of humanity, everyone thinks they're doing the right thing. But at this time where Mother Nature is calling us hard to not only belong to ourselves, to transform ourselves, but to belong to each other, two-way strong just felt like such an abundant, empathic, compassionate idea to hold on to and live into that my privilege or my life of joy would be intertwined with your life of joy and that we would be two rivers feeding both sides of the abundant land between us. It's a very profound concept and it's just one of the ancient concepts that I think as we metabolise it through me and through you and between us, Something new could emerge. You can feel it. There's a different energy to the conversation. For me, in the times that we've connected, where I felt like I'm a part of something much bigger than even my own culture, and it's absolutely embedded in that cultural framework and situated there, but it's even bigger than that. It's that beautiful moment where different ideologies and backgrounds can come together because ultimately our freedom is all bound up together. And I think I've been so blessed in Melbourne because when my partner and I moved down here, this state has a particular history that is very hard in the context of everything that's happened in Australia to come to terms with because there was a false treaty to begin with with one of the head fellas down here. He believed he was signing off on something that would benefit his community and it didn't. And the population went from 60,000 to 2,000 in a couple of years. Of the Indigenous population. Yeah, in Victoria, yeah. And so a lot of people call the state of Victoria the killing fields. At the same time, it's also the home to so much amazing art and commerce and all of the bits of Western culture that we all love and You know, it's an amazing city and a lot of people are drawn towards it for that reason. When we came down, we were here for a purpose and that was to be in the arts industry, but we had a baby pretty much straight away. And so it was the opposite experience that we thought we were going to have down here without our families, but we still knew that there was a purpose for us to be in this city. We were going through this really tough time and we sat down and we were like, we need a grandma. We need a grandma. We don't have a grandma. And so we consciously had a moment of connecting to that wish and desire. And within a couple of weeks, we met a woman, Antamina Wamropen, and I'm actually in her lounge room today. And she became our grandma. 
she's just given us so much. She has helped raise my daughter. She's got five beautiful, extraordinary kids of her own. And she's from West Papua. What's happening in West Papua right now is what happened on my homeland 200 years ago. So it's this really confronting moment in history. But I look at this woman who has all of the consciousness and awareness of what's going on back home and she does what she can in terms of activism and supporting the struggle and the cause. But ultimately she's just this loving woman who is so generous in her spirit and so giving and hasn't let any of that embitter her or change her. All of the elders that I know that are true elders, they have that same special quality. Uncle Larry Walsh, Uncle Archie Roach, Uncle Jack Charles, all these people that have been through so much, more than I could have ever imagined experiencing. Yet when they're together and when they're with other people, all they do is uplift. It just makes me cry in the most beautiful, expansive, gracious way because it's so easy to turn your heart cold after those kinds of experiences, and many people do, and I understand that as well. But to live through this trauma that these people have lived through and come out the other side and still see the good in people and see the wellness of the earth, even amongst all of this chaos, see the peace in people's hearts and the beauty and strength of our culture, That's what they focus on. And maybe it's a coping strategy or maybe it's actually the way that things get better as well. I love that, Lydia. I love it so much because I'm hunting around in the dark for restoration. Yeah. You know, we just did a documentary. My partner did a documentary with Uncle Archie Roach. You sent me a short (laughs) clip. And that man has been like to hell and back and he is just, soulful goodness and to see him and the three men that you just mentioned to see them sitting in the studio together crying and singing just loving each other and that song you know we won't cry we hold our heads up high it's so simple but most of the most amazing things are I think that's possibly a little bit of where I get lost is when I'm not in that space where I'm focusing just on what everything that's going wrong and all the things that need fixing and what should I be doing differently and better. And actually, I really feel like the climate justice conversation in particular, caring for country is what I would call that. But actually, we are country. And this is where getting back to how our old people would have thought about this if this kind of crisis had happened during their time. We are country. So the first step is caring for each other and then watching how that manifests in the way that we treat the land and the way that the land is able to then be restored and heal itself because it has everything within it that it needs to heal. I think part of our relationships with each other are a big part of the climate justice conversation and the non-Indigenous and Indigenous relationship is critical in this country when it comes to that. Could you just try and become Prime Minister? That would be excellent. (laughs) Well, you know, my teacher I was saying before that was a painter, he also used to say, There's a reason why the wise men don't stand at the top and it's because the strongest have to stand at the bottom. They have to stand at the bottom because they hold everything else up. I was like, okay. (laughs) He's passed away now, but he gave me a lot of wisdom at a time where I really needed it. Bless him. I feel like this conversation we're having is so radical. It is. It's radical because I keep going into boardrooms where everyone's trying to think, engineer, our way forward, like maybe technology will save us. And I'm like, what part of us is it going to save? 
That's what I'm leaning into in this conversation. I don't know, but I feel like the things you know and are talking about, if we can take them seriously, the medicine that's in them has to affect us as a collective. We're not just one consciousness in terms of being human. That includes all of the creatures and the land. And we've got our own ways of doing things and our own business. I guess what I would say to those people in those boardrooms, and I suspect what their reaction would be, but it is that we did manage to survive for a very, very, very long time here on our own. And that doesn't just happen by accident. You know, there was a high level of sophistication in terms of our kinship system and how our relationships played out. There was obviously a very strong spiritual and cultural reality and also an intensive land management. And some of the stories that I feel are so inspiring right now, and these are the things that I try to focus on. And there's part of me that's like, that's just a protection thing or a coping mechanism. But I do believe that by focusing on them, they expand. There are things like the work that's happening in fire management, how we burn off to prevent bushfires and the different processes involved with that. It's so much more than a physical task. It's a deep connection to the land that you're on and knowing the boundaries and the proper lines and where one flammable part stops and it's this big intricate mosaic of networks. There's also so much amazing work happening in places like Borolola where fracking has been poisoning the water system. But the community are not going through that in a way that they're playing a passive victim. Whilst they're going through it, they're also on the front foot of exploring new technologies and moving through it and within their own sovereignty and autonomy, working through that issue rather than that kind of, oh, my gosh, this is being done to us, this is being done to us, we have no power, we have no power. So it's a really fine line, but there's examples all over the country where beautiful, beautiful things are happening in terms of land restoration and caring for each other. And I think about the old law and what the old law would say to us is that we are deliberate and conscious creators. We're very good manifestors and what you focus on expands. So whilst you don't want to ignore the problems and be ignorant and walk all over people and deny the suffering, At the same time, you can't focus so much in on that stuff that it's all you can see because then the collective consciousness is starting to create a reality that you just can't actually get out of. So how do we get out of it? Because even I am traumatised. Trauma, grief, the climate, the barriers between us, the identity politics, things are just getting super tense. How do we move to live in restoration narratives, to live in belonging narratives where we can lean into a new imagining for how we can be that supersedes the baby boomer narrative? We have to create a new narrative and it cannot be World War Three. It cannot be that eight men own more wealth than the rest of the planet and everyone's okay with that because that's commerce. It cannot be that the ecosystems and the species will die and collapse around us and that's just the way it is and that little old me can't do nothing about that. Yeah. So how do we live into restoration narratives? I know you are saying stuff about that, but how are you doing that? What's alive in you right now? For me, I could never be poor enough to stop other people from being poor. I could never be sick enough to stop other people from being sick. 
or I could never be unwell enough in terms of mental health to stop other people from feeling that unwellness. So tending to my inner world and actually making sure that the real work is being done and that the real work is making sure that my vibration and my sense of peace and belonging is the first and most important thing to do every day and then everything is an extension of that. You know, Barry, you are doing it. Your work and everything that comes out of what comes out of underneath your roof (laughs) is extraordinary and is so far-reaching and it's a domino effect. Since meeting you, the way that I've been approaching different conversations in my community as well and the provocations that have come out of that, it's all very powerful stuff. One of my elders And this person has been in my life since I was 12 years old. I had a pretty significant breakdown at 12 and I tried to take my own life at my school. And my beautiful mother, she is a wild and free spirit, but she knew instead of taking me to the mental health clinic, she took me to this this person that has been my teacher ever since. He would always say to me, and I really value this so much, We're spiritual beings having a human experience. We didn't come here to talk about the problems, identify them and fix them. What if we came here to shine a light on the things that are working and to shine a light on the well-being? Because if you go back to energy and how energy and matter works, we know that what you focus on expands and all of these laws that we live by spiritually and culturally, they're also the laws that are just in nature. It's that very beginning of our conversation. The grit is so important in making that pearl in the oyster and it is absolutely, it sounds so naff and corny, but it is the darkest before dawn every single day. So these laws are present in nature. They're present in the way that we gather in our societies, culturally and spiritually. And if that other way worked, we would just keep doing that, but it hasn't so far. You know, so this is when I'm tempted to go down that path of going, there's the problem, there's the problem, I need to fix it. This is what we should be doing. And like, well, you've spent so many years doing that and it hasn't really shifted anything. And the big shifts that have been made for me personally have been when I really heavily focused with a great deal of clarity on the things that are strong and beautiful and bright and light. And they have expanded. You were saying when you wake up in the morning, tending to your inner world and to your vibration and your sense of peace, how does Lydia do that? Because I know that music plays a huge part in your life and I think that I'm even getting to a place where the non-intellectual, the non-verbal, like we have to weave that in so much more. We're trying to squish it out and press it out of culture by defunding the arts. I think the arts as vanity doesn't work, but the deeply soulful, we were talking about music that metabolizes the intangible. Yeah. So I'm answering on your behalf. (laughs) There's heaps of different ways. My family, we move, we pack houses, we work railway lines, we've done all of that and we're walkers. There's this beautiful thing my uncle always used to say to me, is like walk to know. And so that's one of the first things that I know each day that I can do to bring myself into alignment with the most highest, positive, strongest part of my own being. And then probably the deeper extension of that, singing on the top of your lungs with a guitar in your hand isn't always possible. 
at eight in the morning, but music is definitely the second option. And any chance that I can get to express that energy creatively brings me back to who I really am. And I think that teacher that I was talking about, the second one that my mum took me to, his main piece of guidance was always, you have to know who you are. And I think that we over-identify with the human physical condition and experience too much. Whereas if we are more connected and identified with ourselves as spiritual beings, all of these conversations shift and can happen in a different way. And so each of those activities, the walking, the singing, the writing, music, playing music, just help me to remember who I really am. Our conversation yesterday was around asking some pretty potent questions about leaning into life. There's a lot of work that's important being called forward right now that we can't put on a CV or charge hourly for. And we value what we can measure and what we can pay for. That's the condition of our social system at the moment. Some of the work that people like you and I do isn't measured and valued in the same way. So how do you make sure that there's still food on the table when you're in that world? Or how do you make sure that your business is being taken care of when you're doing all this other stuff? I guess this last couple of years has been this rapid period of expansion for me personally. And the more I go down the path, the less tolerant I am of situations that don't vibe with it. And even after our conversation yesterday, I must have just tuned in even that little bit more because there's a piece of work in my life that I've just been growingly feeling like it's not not happening anymore. And I literally woke up this morning and I was like, I cannot take another step <laughs> in this context because I just can't find any energy for it, any inspiration. I don't feel alive when I do it. I have to let it go. I can't do it because of money. That's ridiculous. I'm just going to have to have trust and faith that this will all be okay. But it's funny how those tolerance levels shift. The more inner work I do and the more I do focus on feeling good, because feeling good is important. You're not talking about feeling good like Instagram and Netflix feeling good. No. It's feeling alive and connected and like you are really in alignment with the absolute most soaring, highest part of who you are. There was a time where I just had given up on feeling good and I was reading this thing the other day, which is a bit of a tangent, but it was about the use of drugs and alcohol and I've had a, a lot of heartache in my life because of drug use and alcohol, both personally and in my community. And it was interesting because this person who does drug repair therapy in a less clinical way was talking about how people that are using drugs and drinking, they haven't given up on feeling good like the rest of the population has. And there was a time where I had just given up on feeling good. I just accepted that this was how it was and that you just kind of got through your day and just coped and did your best to not lose it. <laughs> and I think the more that I've just gone, actually, you know, we're here to feel good, we're here to focus on the things that make us happy and make us feel peaceful, the less tolerance I have for the other stuff. But how did you get there, Lydia? Like how did you get to a whole and wholesome and kind of integrated notion of, well-being because you know people talk to me about the wellness industry and I want to shoot myself I'm like what is yeah. the wellness industry like the commercialized yeah. notion of wholeness it can't be and I think again this is where the suffering becomes so important because 
there's been some key moments for me in my life that have been these intense experiences of suffering. For where I'm at now, I wouldn't take them back for anything. They have been the moments that have pushed me into a different way of thinking and being in the world. My beautiful teacher, Curtis Yates is his name, actually, the man that has been my teacher for a long time. He was helping me work through childhood trauma and he was really focusing on forgiveness and he was able to share his own story and how he come to a place of forgiveness with some really heavy stuff. At that time in my life, I was full of hatred. I was full of anger. I was actually on a bit of a revenge mission even. Like, I'm going to hurt this person, they hurt me vibe. He said to me... Think about where you were when this all happened. I was about four years old and I was on a very suburban street. And he said, is there anybody that you possibly think would have gone through it if you didn't? And I just remembered this little girl that lived next door. And I don't even know her, but I still feel so much dignity and honour in going through what I had to go through so that she didn't have to. And... I think each one of those moments of intense suffering, there's been two paths that I could have gone down. There is one path that is just full of self-destruction and self-hatred and hatred to the world, and I've given it a good amount of times, but it didn't help, it didn't heal, it didn't do anything. And so the other path has been really important, tending to wellness and feeling good. It's had to take the priority. It's had to be the priority. There's a lot of honour in what we call suffering and I think the aversion to it is worse than the suffering itself sometimes. It's very Buddhist. But, you know, I've had another beautiful experience when I was at the height of a pretty awful drug addiction, really. I had a polysubstance problem, so a bit of everything. <laughs> and this beautiful Buddhist nun came into my life. And again, I was just going through the motions of trying to come to terms with the things that had happened to me. And she shared that story of the Dalai Lama's 2IC, whose greatest fear when he was imprisoned was losing compassion for his perpetrator. And there was something so beautiful in that forgiveness that just freed me. And I just stopped worrying and stopped focusing on the problems and trying to fix them. So what do you focus on instead? The good stories. I'm still very active and engaged in the so-called problems, but in a way that's actually, look at that. That person has been through that struggle and look at how amazing they are doing. Look at this community that has had everything taken away in terms of natural resources and look at what they're creating now. Just really trying to find those beautiful examples and amplifying them as big and bright as I possibly can in my own mind and in my conversations. It's not 100% of the time. It has been a real habit for me to break, actually, shifting that the narrative and the framing. I really believe we are meant to feel loved. We're meant to feel connected. We're meant to feel like we belong together. And, and hope is, is a big part of that. What do you do with anger? Because I really relate to the idea of your own vibration, your own field around you. My tolerance for willfully unconscious people is there isn't any. As my son would say, I'm like a rage monster. And I know that I am love. I actually love humanity. I love other human beings. 
And I'm a rage monster when there's all these people walking around going, I'm not going to be responsible for anything I do and I don't want to even have a thought and, geez, you're really deep. Oh, that's very deep. What the fuck is everyone talking about? I want to know what you really think. I want to know what you really feel. Show up to yourself. Show up to the world. Show up to this moment. And so I get this rage monster intolerance about it and feel really juicy in there in that I'm justified. There's a battle that I'm waging in the moment that I'm feeling the kind of fuck you rage of it. Like fucking ecosystems are collapsing and species are like how loud does the calling have to be for everybody to show the fuck up? to what we can do, who we can be collectively, to belonging to one another. I know it takes work. I know you have to be able to tolerate the pain and the suffering because you're talking about an ability to kind of lean into the pain like in labour, like in birth. My home birthing midwife was like breathe into it, like sit in that pain because if you try and run away, you'll just want drugs. It just gets worse. And the fear is sometimes worse than it itself. Yeah, it is an information force that can take us into birthing life. So I'm struggling with my anger makes me want to stay home and meditate until it goes away. I was speaking to a beautiful elder last night who is the epitome of the peacekeeper in this community in Melbourne. He said to me, there are meetings where I just don't show up because I'm cranky that day and I do not go to anything cranky. I was like, oh, that's so beautiful. And this is a man that grew up in the most notorious boy's home as he was stolen from his mum as a baby. He's got every reason to be angry, far more than what I do. But he's like, I will not bring that version of myself to any public conduct. And so he does stay home and meditate that day. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that. Meditation is so key because it's not like you can be in a car going 100 kilometres an hour and suddenly turn around and do a U-turn and not crash. So the slowing down and the stillness, if those thoughts and those feelings, and I feel the same way as you do, I completely understand there's days where it's all racing in one direction really fast and there's so much momentum behind those thoughts and feelings and they're the days where it's just like you have to lay low today and you have to... Not try to stop this story, but just slow it down a little bit because to try and stop it would you jackknife. <laughs> I really love that. I went to my osteopath yesterday. Yeah. And I hadn't seen him in months and he's a really gifted guy. He's called Choppy and he's divine. I went to him and I was like, and all the things and I got to do all this stuff. And he goes, you're very adrenalized. <laughs> Yeah, because we're doers. That's what we do. And sometimes the doing undoes us. Amen, sister. And then I got on his table and I was a little bit fuck you and mostly going, yeah, you're right, I'm spinning on my own top. Yeah. And then I got off his table what felt like two minutes later, but he shut my nervous system down and it went to like a reboot place. I slept last night like I haven't slept in months and we can feel guilty for slowing down. Totally. It's the most ridiculous thing that we do. Why do we do that? Because the urgency has its own quality. The urgency rides us. I'm a hobby horse for the urgency. (laughs) You know, my partner and I were talking the other night. We were driving. I think Sarah and I had fallen asleep. We're like, let's just keep driving and let her let her have a bit of a snooze. And we are brought up talking about culture in a really contemporary way. His family's from the Torres Strait, but they 
were the first wave of climate change refugees in the 50s. And his mum grew up on the mainland up in Bamaga and he grew up in Roma, so western Queensland, as far away from a saltwater island as you could possibly be. And so there's a lot of reclaiming and refining knowledge and culture that we engage in together and through creative practice. And so we were talking about this thing because he's also spent a lot of time out bush, out in remote community, and we're talking about how out there the law, the trukapa, the dreaming is actually very focused on the fact that time is not linear. So there isn't the past, the present and the future in the way that we think about it. Parallel universes and quantum physics and how does quantum physics and that understanding of the world sit in the context of Aboriginal law because they're saying very similar things. And we were having a joke and we were like, what if the climate change agenda and the things that are going on at the moment, we're looking at it like it's a future problem. What if it's not? What if it's something that actually happened in the past? (laughs) And what if what we call our old people and our old ways and our traditional ways is actually in front of us? And so this is some of the ways that Aboriginal law and different concepts of time and space helps me think about the problems that we're going through because I do believe that this is all in the plan, even the invasion. I know certain parts of the community that I could never have that conversation and it's a scary thing to say out loud. My mum is a very spiritual woman. She has a good laugh about things. We're laughers. But she's like, what if we called cook in? I was like, mum, what do you mean? And she's like, well, we're deliberate creators. We're conscious beings. We're the ultimate manifestors of everything we created the earth that's our dreaming that's our law what if we called this other energy in because we'd actually gone as far as we possibly could in terms of our own advancement and we needed this massive intense hit of contrast and suffering to be able to expand even further and this period that we think is so permanent and real right now is really only just a 250 year period and what we know is you know 80,000 plus years so it's just a blip I think having those conversations and leaning into the lore of it and how we can think about time and space differently and and energy differently it really helps me feel less guilty about taking time out when I need to I love that I've been talking to some quantum physicists And that's deep science, that they're really understanding now that consciousness comes before matter. Yes, absolutely. And so we know that in a cultural law sense. What if we take those two things, those two dreamings, and approach something like climate change with that thought? Then how we think about the earth and its wellness is critically important. Only focusing on the bits that are broken will lead to more broken bits. I mean, I know that sounds really intense and radical, but we do have an obligation to shine a light on the things that are working. I think you're 100% right because if there isn't a restoration narrative, if if we can't find it now, well, there's nothing but destruction to lean into. There's nothing but watching the world go down and that's not creative, that's not generative, that's not what life is. No, no. And, you know, we might be having that conversation as the ship sinks. Who knows? But at least in that moment, we are giving it everything that we've got in terms of belief and hope and positivity. Thanks for tuning in to the Dumbo Feather podcast. 
You can read and hear more from Lydia over at the Dumbo Feather website, dumbofeather.com. And while you're there, you may like to consider subscribing to our print magazine, which we deliver worldwide. Thanks to the guys at Cheshire Audio and Yaga for editing this episode for us. And thanks again to the team at The Cape for sponsoring it. You can learn more about the project and where it's at by heading to live at thecape.com.au. That's all from us. Take care, and I look forward to your company next time on the Dumbo Feather Podcast. Thank you.